everyone. I'm Arlene Dickinson. Thanks for joining me on my podcast. It's no secret that small business is a big deal for TELUS. Earlier this year, TELUS helped make things better for small businesses through their pledge to stand with owners. In continuing their support for owners across Canada, they are excited to introduce the Owner's Advantage Plan, an exclusive mobility plan tailored to help business owners stay connected to their family, business, and community. The Owner's Advantage Plan offers a wide variety of benefits designed to provide greater value and more flexibility than ever before, including yearly device upgrades, endless data, same-day device repair, and access to on-demand virtual healthcare, all on the world's fastest mobile network in the world. Visit telus.com slash owner's advantage. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Reinvention. Today, Arlene chats with Canadian television icon Rick Mercer. For three decades, Rick has been filling homes with laughter and encouraging us all to think differently. Widely viewed as the country's sharpest and funniest political satirist, his work inadvertently became a family favorite for immigrants, informing them of current events through comedy and providing them a sense of belonging. This theme of unintentional outcomes is one which Rick is quite familiar with. Growing up in a family which loved to discuss politics, young Rick wrote and performed in an award-winning one-man show, touring across Canada and making him a national star. It was shortly after this that he co-created what he is now known for, This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and later, The Rick Mercer Report. All right, so Rick, welcome to Reinvention. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to see you again. Last time I think I saw you, we were at a dinner party eating yes. far too much good food. I know. It was a, and it was a, a really, it was kind of a fancy dinner party. Which, and, and this was pre-pandemic. And even then I was like, well, I haven't worn clothes like this in quite a while. <laughs> Unlike now, which of course, this is a big deal, but I'm dressed from the waist up. I mean, this is, this almost, almost never happens. I appreciate that, that you got dressed up from here. You, um, so talk about the pandemic. Are you feeling, tell me what that's been like for you. I'm kind of curious how you've managed. You're a public personality. You're out there all the time on stage. I'm not going to do a lot on intro on you because everybody knows who you are, but sure. What was it like? I, but I'm also, you know, I'm a, I'm a comfortable introvert. Like I, I've led this public life for probably 30 plus years, uh, but I'm, I'm comfortable being an introvert. So I think I did well uh, during the pandemic, certainly better than some people I know. And I'm loath to talk about any kind of hardships during the pandemic, because I'm sure you are the same way. You and I can talk about what we hated, but we're all, everyone is very cognizant of the fact that, you know, not that far from me and I'm in a house, there's people, you know, on the seventh floor in a small apartment during the pandemic with, you know, two children and no spouse. I mean, those people had it super hard. And the people who, especially in the early days, when we didn't really know what this thing was, were going and working the front lines at Sobeys and stuff and the liquor store, (laughs) like (laughs) the true heroes. Um, So some, a lot of people had it worse, but, Everyone in show business, basically, like a lot of industries, uh, just had the rug pulled out from under them. And, uh, you know, my joke was lots of people could work from home, but people in show business couldn't. We could be unemployed from home, but that was about it. So I was lucky to have this book because it gave me something to do. And I'm 
a little bit nervous about the future right now because I've always had a project. I've always had a deadline. And I've always had a deadline that I'm responsible to someone else to, whether it's a producer or a, a network or whoever. So this is the first time in my life that I don't have that. Oh. And, and it's kind of uh, daunting. So are you trying to figure out how to fill that void? Or are you actually going to allow yourself to enjoy that void? I'm going to enjoy it for a bit, but I'm, I'm, you know, if I, if I started saying I have the freedom now to do whatever it is I want to do, like that's kind of just saying what I think you're supposed to say, because I've never been someone who sat down and just wrote a short story on my own or started a screenplay on my own. Like I've written screenplays when people call me and say, will you write a screenplay? And here's the contract then you go do it. And I don't know if that's a character flaw of mine, but I'd like to explore it, but I don't have a lot of faith that I'll, it'll be a very productive year unless I lock in on something. That's the, you know, it's very interesting you say that because I get, people always say to me, you know, you've always got something on the go. You've got all these things happening. And I keep thinking, but what else would I do? Like, I, I don't know what else yeah. I do. Like I like that busyness and I enjoy all the multiple things and, I can understand what you say, like that you don't know what exactly it's going to be next, but you have to have something because I'd be the same way. Yeah. And there's, and there's lots of things I could do, but uh, I just, I'm just not wired that way. Like I need a job. I need a job to go to now. You know, when I wrote this memoir, I, I you know, I went to work every day in my shed, but I still, I had to go to work every day, went in, you know, checked in, put the log in the fire, sat down, wrote for however many hours. And it was like, you know, it was clocking in. I, I need that. Your fourth book. Yeah. Although in many ways, it's my first real book, I think. Um, my very first book was a long time ago. And it was a collection of rants from uh, This Hour's 22 Minutes. It was called Streeters because in those days I called the rant Streeters. And uh, it was a very small little book. I was so very proud of it. Um, and then I started doing that, like publishing my rants. And uh, I remember talking to someone once who had written a friend who had written a number of books. And uh, I said, well, you know, I've written a book. And he said, he said, well, no, you kind of hit select all and hit print. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, so okay. I thought, yeah, that's true. So then, then I started writing essays uh, and putting them in the rant books. So I would, there would be original material in the rant books. But uh, this is the first time I sat down and wrote something from scratch. There's no recycling or repurposing, I guess they say now, of material. And uh, I literally sat down and Googled how to write a memoir and went from there. <laughs> and there's actually Google told you how to do it? They did, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Siri cut in every once in a while saying, no, that's not right. Do Don't it. tell that story. Yeah. Well, the one thing it said was, I don't feel like you have to start at the beginning and write uh, chronologically. And so I kept thinking like, okay, what do I write? What do I write? And I, I couldn't get started. Then I thought, I guess I'll just start chronologically. And I didn't think I would like writing about my childhood, but I found out I did. And then I just continued to write chronologically until my editor finally said, okay, stop. You've got a book now. Really? So you, and you haven't gotten how, what age did you get to in the book? I got the book ends when I moved to Toronto. When I leave Halifax, I moved to Toronto with my partner, Gerald, and we're about to start uh, the Rick Mercer Report, which most people know me uh, more than probably anything else. Yeah. Um, so it stops there. 
So you actually, it's not really a memoir, then it's a, it's part one of a memoir because you still yeah. have a whole bunch of storytelling oh, to tell. Please God, there's more yet to come, you know. Tell me about the book. Tell me about, this book just came out. Um, it's, it's a fantastic read. I have, I just got my copy. The, your publisher was kind enough to send it to me and we have already kind of going, holy smokes, I, I haven't finished it, but I'm like loving That's right, it. That's great, all right. Um, and I know I probably should have finished it for this, but I have to be honest, I left it in Toronto when I came to Calgary and I thought, damn. <laughs> so that's okay. I you'd fill in the gaps. Um, yeah. Why this book? Why now? Why did you, what, what created the opportunity for you to write this? It was something that I've been banging around. Um, Canadians like memoirs and I like memoirs. I like reading memoirs. Yeah. Although it's funny when you read memoirs, you don't ever think of writing one. So you don't really pay attention to how they're doing it. Um, but I do like memoirs. And when I, you know, I was on the road with a bunch of stand up comics and I was doing stand up and, uh, one of the reasons why I was looking forward to talking to you a little bit because I'm not a stand-up comedian and I was 50 years old when I went on the road as a stand-up comedian and that was something I'd never done before but part of that was I was on the road with some real kick-ass stand-up comedians um, you know Ali Hassan uh, Ivan Decker Sophie Buttle uh, Deborah DiGiovanni I mean these are great great stand-ups and none of us or at least I didn't know any of them really before we started and we went from St. John's to Victoria and you're spending all the time in the buses and in the cars and the vans and the planes, and the airports and the lobbies and the sound checks and the green room. And you spend a lot of time with these people and everyone is kind of getting to know one another. And it's kind of, you, you start talking about your origin story and, Oh, you know, Oh, when I was in high school, this happened or this happened. And, and when you've got that group of people as an audience, you're kind of workshopping your stories. Right. Like they better be good. And so you're, I realized I was kind of create. that was the genesis of the memoir because a lot of them were very encouraging. They were like, Oh, I love your stories about high school. I love your stories about your days in the theater and stuff. And that's when it started coming together that, Oh, maybe there's a book there. And, and when you think about writing that book through the pandemic, cause you wrote like in, in, in a very dark period of time like yeah. even though you're an introvert I am I'm an introvert too I'm a comfortable introvert I haven't heard that before characterized that way but I like that because I feel exactly the same like I I crave being home sometimes like in the worst way like I just want nobody around me I don't have a partner like you do so I get to really shut the world out um, yeah yeah but we have two floors and there's two double doors out there which are now <laughs> hermetically sealed he can't get in here even if he wants <laughs> Gerald is not an introvert, though. He's like, he's like, he's. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we're both comfortable in our own skin and comfortable banging around the house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as long as he doesn't break through the hermetically sealed doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so tell me the book. How how's it being received? How are are you happy with what you? Oh, mostly I'm happy that. Well, I think the times call for fun reads and escapist reads, and I wanted it to not be self indulgent. I didn't want it to be like, oh, me, 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 me. And I wanted, I only wanted to write it if I thought uh, the stories were funny, basically. I wanted it to be a funny book. And I knew it was possible. Someone gave me, before I started, someone gave me uh, the memoir of an Australian television presenter, they call them. Sorry, his name is slipping my mind now. And he wrote many memoirs, like, wrote a bunch. 
And they said, read this. My editor said, read, you know, look at this guy, read this guy. And I loved, I loved the book. And I wasn't familiar with any of his work or any of the shows or any of the references, <laughs> anything really. So but it was just a good read and it was well-written. And I realized as someone who's read a lot of memoirs that there's two kinds, really. There's people who phone it in and just bang it off because for whatever reason, people think that people might be interested in their life and you can tell that they did that. And there's other people who really take it on and write it as something that's a standalone, right. you know, good read. And I really wanted to be uh, accused of the latter and not the previous. And so that kind of inspired me that, oh, maybe people would uh, like these stories, whether they're, they're familiar with my career or not, or that interested well, your stories are really, uh, you, you, you have this unique ability, Rick, and, and that's what I've loved about it so far is that you're the, probably the only person I know who makes me laugh so hard I cry, but, well, then also, but also makes me think so hard I can cry. And, 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 and I think that is, if, if I have a high compliment to pay to you, it is that, is that you bring this kind of this grounded kind of humor about life that makes me laugh out loud and, and you know, as I said, cry because I'm laughing so hard. And then, but you also do, you also position things and say things that whether it's in your rants or whether it's your stories that actually make me and compel me to think harder and, and make me have more empathy and compassion for other Canadians, for other circumstances. And you do that not always through humor, but just through your storytelling in general. And I, I, I want to thank you for that because it's, I think it's very rare that somebody can make you think and laugh at the same time. Well, that's great. I, you know, I appreciate that. I think there's uh, you know, humor can do a lot of things and there's a lot of different styles of humor. When I started out, I was the proverbial angry young man. Like I had a lot of, you know, a lot of access to grind, uh, which I think is normal for, for a young person. Uh, as time went on, I became less and less of an angry young man for lots of different reasons. And although I still think there's, there's a place for that, uh, I, I felt very comfortable moving into uh, celebration a celebration lane. Like you have to pick a lane yeah. and you, you, you can't be in three lanes at once. You know, a comics comic, Norm Macdonald, classic example of a comics comic. I mean, I mean a true genius, but never, never ever stopped being a comics comic. And by that, I mean, a comics comic is always playing to the comics. Yeah. And that can be a dangerous road to go down because the comics have a different, uh, there's a different bar. There's a different level of acceptance and basically anything goes with comedians. Um, but there's nothing better than making comedians laugh. But yeah. Norm managed to do both. He managed to play to the comics at the back of the room, but also build this huge audience. But I became someone who I just chose to celebrate, to kind of accent the positive. Uh, that was the whole purpose behind the Mercer Report. And I'm not saying that Canada doesn't have problems. I'm not saying there's things in our past that should doesn't need, you know, examining and correction and reconciliation and everything else. But uh, I just chose to take this lane where I was going to visit small towns and celebrate them. And that is kind of an odd choice for comedians because that's not how you start. No one gets laughs by celebrating the teacher. They get laughs by taking the teacher down, you know, and then the higher you up the food chain, you take down the principal, then you're a hero. 
So it was an odd lane to choose, but it was one that was quite frankly wide open, and uh, and I'm I'm content being there. Yeah, that's I I guess for somebody who listens to comics and you know, and appreciate. So I've never thought about the work side of being a comic. I've never thought about what you just said, which is there's, there's actually structure to it. You actually have to think about oh. what you're in, right? Well, this is new to me because, you know, when I started out, I mean, sticking with the theme of your podcast, when I started out, uh, well, I never saw a stand-up comedian until I was in my 20s. I was mm-hmm. on TV uh, was, uh, because we had no stand-up clubs in, in Newfoundland. There was no history of stand-up. Uh, there were sketch comedy club, the sketch comedy groups and Codco being the most famous one in Newfoundland. And yeah. so that's what I did right at, in high school. We started a sketch comedy club and a sketch comedy troupe. And that's what we did. Sketch comedy in bars and theaters. And we thought, oh, well, we'll, uh, you know, go to Toronto. And I guess we go to the Ridley, apparently, according to the article in the Globe. And, and then like kids in the hall and then Lauren Michaels will come see us and then we'll get a TV show. I think that's how it works. So we thought. Well, that's where that'll go. Of course, that didn't work out. Um, but uh, I, I was never a stand-up. And then after I was on TV, I would do two minutes here and there. When I was hosting things, I became a host, a lot of that stuff. And sometimes I'd be referred to as a stand-up in the media. And I always thought that that was an impo- like I was an imposter because I wasn't. Then I went, before the Mercer Report started, I went on a Just for Laughs comedy tour with true stand-ups, but I was just the host. Yeah. And as we went across the country, I started developing like, oh, when I come out to interview, introduce this comedian, maybe I'll try to do a minute here, or a minute there. And I kind of thought someday I would love to try to be a stand-up with real stand-ups on the bill. And that means going across the country and doing two 20-minute sets, say, that changed some nights. And that's what I did when I left the Mercer Report. I decided oh, I'm not going to host a show that goes across. I'm going to headline a show that goes across the country. And uh, that was a big learning curve. And that meant going back and playing rooms smaller than I'd ever played in my life. Because if you want to try something out in stand-up, you have to go to open mic nights. Right. Which are started on godly hours, like 11 o'clock. I was like, what? 11 o'clock? And then you go in and there's like nine people in the room. <laughs> if oh you're God. lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. And I was like... It's like nine people are here. I, I used to have a TV show where what nine people? You know who I am? No, and surely people too. But that's what I did, and I built an act and became a stand-up in my fifties. It was very weird. Is that where you developed? Did you develop a thick skin through that? Like, did you change? Like, you always have to have a thick skin just being in the business you're in. But did you develop a different kind of deflection to be able to? I, I'm still, you know, there's a certain advantage to doing what I did when you're the age I am and you're kind of famous already. So people, you know, there's a lot of people whose heads were on the table for the first three comics. Uh, and then, um, you know, the Mercer Report McMurcer, they go, uh, uh, uh. so they were kinder to me than some of the others. There's a, certain, there's a certain advantage baked in when you've been on TV for 20 odd years. Uh, but I, I don't know about the thick skin. I guess I've always had a thick skin. Like, I don't remember stuff. Like, I, I'll say, uh, oh, I bumped into so-and-so who writes for this magazine. He seems like a nice guy. And then Gerald will be there and he'll say, like, yeah, he said you should leave television forever and never <laughs> in 1997. You remember that? He's the one who said that. And I was like, 
No, I don't. I don't remember that. How do you uh, write a memoir, though? How do you write a memoir if you don't remember oh, things? Oh, oh. Well, <laughs> I, well I, I also said I was not going to settle any scores. Like, oh, okay. I've, I've, have you ever been reading a memoir and you're like, hmm, you're not going to let that go? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's you're, right. Yeah. Who is this aimed at? You're arguably like the greatest basketball player in the world and you're pissed <laughs> off because your high school coach said something to you once. Like, yeah, that one's a good one. That's that's pretty bitter. Um, I wasn't going to set any, settle any scores. I never kept a diary. My mother's told me since I started in this business, you should be keeping a diary. I never did. Uh, as luck would have it, Jeff Dion, who I traveled with on the road extensively as road director on this hour's 22 minutes, kept extensive notes uh, and every literally he's a journalist, ex-journalist or was a journalist. And uh, he just kept extensive notes and not only, uh, you know, where we were going, what we were doing, but names and just really important notes. And I had access to that. So there was yeah. a huge period where that uh, grounded me. Also, if, if you're doing TV shows, you can go back and watch the TV show and then that will trigger the memories. So I was very lucky that way. Yeah, that's because I, I, I often think sometimes, you know, just trying to remember stories and I'll, I'll think, I, I, I can't even remember. I sometimes get caught now in mid-sentence. I'm like, what was I just about to say? And oh, I, yeah. I, well, it's, it's just awful. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's a tricky thing. And also, you uh, call someone up and you start talking to them and they're like, no, no, I wasn't there. They're like, yeah, you were. No, wasn't me. I was like, I remember it so well. And they don't, you know, my buddy, actually, my husband said to me, you know, he was a comedian, you know, he was in the comedy troupe with me and he said, I'll never forget. He said, uh, my last uh, competitive tennis match, he said, you and Tina and Shelly and Ashley and all these people that were in the comedy world, you all came down, you sat on your car, you're all smoking cigarettes and watching me play tennis in my whites. You were like laughing and carrying on. He said, that was, that was so awful. I was like, I don't remember that. We did that. That seems like really a mean thing to do. I don't think we would do that. He's like, you did it. And it was like, I have to believe him, but I don't remember that. <laughs> and it's selective memory. I think when, yeah, like it's seared into his memory as a terrible memory, whereas <laughs> the rest of it's just forgot about it conveniently. So, yeah. The people that created the memory just to, to the topic on reinvention and, and what you just talked about. Though, I mean, you're in your fifth, you're 50, maybe 50 when you started the, yeah. you know, so how did you, how did you find the courage? You know, one of the things I'd like to do on this podcast is get people to think about how, in age isn't what stopped you. Um, skill set, you know, you can always learn. There's, but what is it that actually creates people from and stops them? Creates people from changing and stops people, other people from changing. So, what made you have the courage to go and reinvent yourself? In some respects, you you went from host to a stand-up comedy. That's a huge reinvention in and of itself. How did you find? Yeah. I think the older you get, the more experience you get, the more you know, the more difficult it is. One of the things I realized in writing this book was my big break was I did a one-person show at a very young age that became a huge hit. I'm not saying huge hit to brag, but it did, and it changed my life. But Gerald, my partner, was asked to bring in a one-person show from 
St. John's or from Newfoundland to the National Arts Center in this 19 seat theater they had on the go in this old garage. And we had just started in our relationship. It was very early days. It was a huge scandal. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I was in a comedy troupe, but I hadn't done anything alone on stage. And he asked three people, three different people. He said, Hey, you know, I've got this gig. You come to Ottawa, do a one person show. It's like five weeks work, six weeks work, uh, which is a lot. But still, the show had to be created and on its feet in five or six weeks. And three people said no. And I was sitting at home with him. And we were I was like ranting about Brian Mulroney or something. And he said, why don't you do the show? Why don't you come to Ottawa? And I was like, yeah, okay, I will. Because I didn't know any better. Like, I was young. I just didn't know any better. I didn't know that five or six weeks wasn't enough time. I didn't know that I didn't know how to stand on stage. I didn't know that my voice would start to go because I wasn't used to talking that much. There was so much I didn't know and I didn't care. I just did it. And I think there's, there's something great about that. You know, people think of Alexander Graham Bell and he's like this wizened old troll that they're used to seeing from their, or they're imagined from their like grade seven history book. But he was like 21 or two when he invented the telephone. And everyone was like, it's impossible to have a machine where you pick it up and hear someone on the other side. He just went out and did it. So I think the more you know, the harder it is. I think what probably uh, gave me the courage to do it was, and I've always done this, is, is sign on the dotted line and you know that come this day, you're going to be standing on that stage and the lights are going to come up and everyone is going to be there and you better be prepared. And if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that deadline, if it wasn't for that, holy hell, I'm going to be thrown in the deep end and I better learn how to swim because there's not going to be anyone there to help me. I don't think I, I would have done it. Yeah, it's interesting though, Rick, because I, I believe that, you know, like you say, well, if I didn't have the contract, but you still have to have the desire to do it. So I, I take the point that the more we know, the less likely we are to take risk. I think that's true because we, we probably have, we have better understanding what might happen if things go wrong um, or how hard things actually are. But don't you think it also, you also have to be willing to not want to live with the regret of not trying? Like Sure, I, sure. Because, you know, stand-up is an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of people in stand-up, they're using stand-up. Uh, they're always looking for an off-ramp. Again, Norm Macdonald, great stand-up comedian who was never looking for an off-ramp. No matter what he did, movies, television, he always returned. But, you know, David Letterman was one of the greatest stand-up comics of his generation. And the minute that he had the off-ramp to late-night television, he never performed stand-up ever again. Uh, it was a means to an end. And whereas Jerry Seinfeld returned to stand-up the minute he could. Uh, so it was, for me, it was totally different. I had the TV career. I had the, the, the writing career. I had all those things that many people get into stand-up to get reach. And then I, I decided, and now I want to do stand-up. And, and it wasn't in order to be famous. It wasn't in order to grow a reputation because I had that in place. But I just wanted to be able to say that I did it, that I could stand on stage, you know, at the Jubilee, great big honking room like that, and actually pull it off for 25 minutes at a time and not just because I'm on TV and do it alongside brilliant stand-ups like Ivan Decker. I'm not saying I was, I wasn't the best on the bill by a long shot, but I held my own. And yeah. so it was really very much 
for my own sake. So is that the advice that you'd give to people who are looking later in their life to, you know, try something different that it is as much for you as it is for anyone else? I mean, isn't that why we do anything at the end of the day? Don't we I have think so. Yeah. And I think if you're, if you're, I mean, if it's later in your life, um, God, what a terrible phrase later in your life. But if you're in a position where, uh, you don't have say young children or true responsibilities like that, then you can afford to take the risks. But it's funny you asked me about advice. You know, I, I have a buddy of mine from Newfoundland, uh, Craig, and he uh, has a. This is gonna. This is gonna sound like a, a Dragon's Dead uh, thing now. But um, <laughs> Let me get my he's, an, he's an actor, and uh, he sold cookies on the side as a. Uh, that was a side hustle. He just started selling cookies because he he needed some money, walking around money one time, and he put an ad on Facebook saying, "For twelve bucks, I'll deliver twelve homemade cookies to your house." A ridiculous notion. Uh, but anyway, he just needed some money that week. He sold, you know, a dozen, dozen cookies or something. Had some walking around money. And then he started doing it on the side. And then he started a little pop-up at uh, uh, Williamson Sonoma. He'd bake cookies on the weekend in one of their little ovens. Yeah. yeah. Sell them, you know, and there'd be the smell of cookies in the store. And and uh, he would make the money. There's no overhead. No overhead. I always thought this is a great gig, side hustle for an actor. Anyway, he calls me up one day and he says, I'm thinking of opening a store, like a real store. And uh, he called me because I was the only person he knew that knew anything about business. And I said, I don't know anything about that business, Craig. I know about show business. Like, I know how to produce a TV show. I don't know anything. All I know is this is a terrible idea. Like, you're, <laughs> you're doing well selling the cookies up there in Williams and Sonoma. You're, you're putting money in your pocket. You don't have any overhead. What do you mean? You're going to buy it. You're going to rent a store in Toronto? <laughs> Are you nuts? I was, I was like, this is my advice. And, and then as I talked to him too, I realized, wow, he really knows nothing about business at all, which is understandable. But he's like, I'm going to do it. Anyway, he did it. That wasn't that long ago. He just, he's opening his sixth location now. Oh, he's expanding into malls. Yeah. He's everywhere. It's like, it's a big deal. So my advice was, don't do it. But, you know, he just did it. And I, again, I think talking to him, I thought, wow, there's a lot he doesn't know. And uh, that gave him the strength to, to, to do it. He's, now he's a cookie mogul. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And he can entertain people when they come in, too. So that's actually yeah, yeah. on top of it. You know, um, Talk, we talked a little bit about age a minute ago, and I'm older than you are, um, quite a few years older than you are, but somehow I feel like I grew up with you. And, and it's a funny thing. I was, I was contemplating our conversation. I was thinking about how, uh, you know, I guess I'm an immigrant. My family, we're immigrants to Canada. And a lot of what you did on This Hour and the Rick Mercer Report and, you know, through your career on television and the specials you did, I... I always felt like I was learning about my country and, 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 you know, as, and, and it's funny when I say I grew up with you, I really mean that. I really mean that I started to get a sense of, you know, how important this country was. And, and so I think about when you did the talking with Americans segment and that sticks in my mind a lot, you know, whether it's the 24 hour, the 20 hour clock and the 24 hour clock or the, the planes with the, um, you know, like you had the planes with the, uh, the, the jets and the propellers and you, yeah, you, yeah, did, yeah. you did so many 
amazing. But it struck me at the time as I was watching all that through my years is that I really started to develop a notion of what Americans were against Canadians. And I started to, and, I, and I, 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 I'm going to blame you and thank you for this. Maybe I'm going to blame you more. <laughs> and that I really think they're not that bright because sometimes they don't. It's not that they're not that bright. It's just different. You know, I actually learned a little bit about American history in school. Uh, not that much about Canadian history. That's another problem. But learned a bit about American history. And then if you have an even passing remote interest in American history, there's all sorts of films and TV shows. You almost learn by osmosis. You can't expect them to know as much about us as we know about them, you know, the, the cultural colossus and stuff. Um, but that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But I really appreciate you saying about learning about the country because that's something we figured out really early on. Like our very first episode of the Mercer Report, we went to a Callaway. And there was a lot of people saying, you can't open in a Callaway. Like, you're getting all this attention that you're launching this new Rick Mercer show. And, you know, it's all being leading up to here. You can't open in bloody a Callaway. Like, you know, there's tens of millions of people in the GTA. Do something in the GTA. In Toronto or Vancouver, for God's sakes. But we went to a Callaway. And, and one of the things we learned was families were watching the show together, but also... Uh, Parents were really passionate about their kids watching the show because they wanted to imprint not just the notion of being Canadian because they live in Calgary or they live in Edmonton or Toronto or wherever. They wanted to imprint all of Canada on their kids, right? It's not just Calgary. It's not just St. John's or Halifax. There's also a Calumet. There's also Northern BC. And they knew that every week I would do this in a way that was fun and celebratory and I can't tell you how many new Canadians have said that to me, that that's how they learned about Canada and uh, even learned the language, which I always thought was funny because I talk too fast and I have a certain accent. And I would say, oh, there's these, these, this, this first generation of Canadians out there that have like Newfoundland colloquialisms in there. In there. Um, but yeah, that, that meant the world to me. And I, and I loved doing that. And I loved discovering those places and I loved... So often there was that feeling of like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe I get to put this on TV. This is, this is mind blowing. Well, and, and I, I want to take back what I said about Americans being dumb, but I meant more just in terms of the context of what you were interviewing them on. And, and how did you, when you were, when you're talking to, when you were doing those interviews and also when you later on did with Mary Walsh and did all the um, things with politicians, did you ever have a moment of holy Crap! <laughs> I like. Oh. And where did you find the courage to like say to Bob Ray, "Let's make Snow Angels," or, or you know, I think you did Snow Angels with him. And, I know I did Snow Angels with uh, Ed Broadbent. Uh, Ed Broadbent. Ed Broadbent. Um, Ed Broadbent, who's you know, and still with us, but you know, he's a bit older, and he yeah. was a true elder statesman at the yeah. time, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, we did Snow Angels on Parliament Hill, which was beautiful. And of course, we got, I got naked with Bob Ray and we talked about right, naked. <laughs> Skinny and, and I think, you know, all those times, even someone like a fellow like Stephen Harper, who I did the sleepover, the quasi sleepover with at 24 Sussex, um, whether you like these people, and God knows there's a lot of people who have no time for Ed Broadbent, and there's a lot of people who have no time for Stephen Harper or no time for Bob Ray, but those segments, uh, I felt. You know, they all spoke to the character of the individual. And uh, like with Stephen Harper, 
we revealed that he did have a pretty good sense of humor. Yeah. And people who know him know that that is true. Now, you, you don't have to like him, but it's just true. Um, and, and Bob Ray, whether, whatever you think of him, you know, he's the kind of guy in the fall with the leaves changing in northern uh, Canada, <laughs> northern Ontario will take off his clothes and jump into a lake for a gag. And that speaks volumes. And, and Ed Broadbent, after all he did, that he would do snow angels on Parliament Hill while in order to raise money for Raise the Roof, which is a homeless charity, which is what he was doing. You know, this speaks volumes about the individuals in some ways that uh, long sit-down interviews mightn't uh, bring across. Well, certainly I saw, you know, Stephen Harper interviewed a hundred times. I never once saw any sense of a sense of humor. No, I, I actually no. had a chance to have dinner at 24 Sexes with the Harpers. And uh, I, I honestly, I have so much respect that you were able to have that kind of a conversation with him because he, <laughs> <laughs> his blue eyes, like, like he's pretty steely when he wants to. Oh, be. sure. Sure. And, and they were, it's funny. And, you know, you think of Justin Trudeau being, you know, scripted and controlled and all about the image. I mean, Harper was as much, yeah. if not more. I mean, well, he's the first prime minister that actually had an image consultant and a wardrobe person and all that stuff on the road with him at all times. But they kind of went another way, which is interesting. They they made a conscientious decision to uh, not let anyone know that he had a sense of humor. I mean, for God's sakes, it was a state secret that he could play the piano for years because they thought it was a bit too frou-frou, basically. Like, oh. And a little, a little too elitist. Oh, geez, yeah, don't be playing you know, that piano. <laughs> don't be playing the piano. What does that say about it? So they were really tight, tightly scripted. Uh, I mean, they loosened up a little bit by the time I came along. But uh, even in that segment, the one thing I couldn't get him to do was play, play the piano. And his aides were all saying he doesn't play the piano. And I was like, there's sheet music on the piano. Someone plays the piano. It's all Beatles music. Clearly, it's him. No, yeah. he doesn't no. play. No. Okay. <laughs> How did you decide which, uh, you know, straight a little bit off topic, but I'm actually so fascinated. Like, how did you decide how to, what to do with them? Because, like, did you research that Bob Ray would, you know, go skinny different? Did you just, like, have No, to- no, no. And we never ever knew really what we were going to do with the prime minister, any prime minister, obviously. They, you know, there's not going to be a lot of latitude. I mean, spending the amount of time with them was the big thing to negotiate. But uh, it made sense that I would go to 24 Sussex. With Bob Ray... Uh, it was a fishing trip. It wasn't driven by him. I thought I had this stupid notion that I would take everyone who's running for the leadership of the Liberal Party on a fishing trip. And <laughs> he would do all the things that guys do on a fishing trip. And talk about, you know, someone who was a bit full of themselves. I mean, Stefan Dion just said no. And uh, Michael Ignatz had said, like, can you send us samples of your work? And because uh, <laughs> he'd only been in the country for 10 minutes. And so we're like running around going, I guess we need to, I don't know, send him a, I don't know. And, uh, and Bob went, okay. You know, he just said, okay. And then, so he was the only one who said yes. And we said, well, I can't just go with Bob because that's totally unfair. I'm the yeah. choosing one person. Then I thought, ah, oh, shag it. The other two said, no, let's take him. And he came totally alone. Obviously, there was no one there to go, for God's sakes, keep your clothes on, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ray. So, uh, yeah. And I thought he was a bit nuts, too, because we were, as we were flying up to northern Ontario, I said to him, uh, and this was just us on the plane, I said, why would you want to do this? I mean, what, at this point in your life, you're, you know, you, 
you've got respect, you're, you've got your legal career, you know, all that kind of bad business about being the NDP premier of Ontario's now in the past. And why would you take this? Why would you want to be the leader of the Liberal Party? And he started talking to me about how there was this impending financial crisis that was coming like a freight train and no one was talking about it. And he was saying, you know, there could be a major banking collapse and the subprime, you know, uh, issue in the United States. Anyway, he was laying out this massive financial collapse. And I was like, <laughs> and I was also thinking, if you do believe that's true, why in God's name would you want to be the person in charge? You just, you were, remember what it felt like when you were the premier of Ontario and the country went, went into a recession? Why would you want to do that? Anyway, this was his thing. But I also thought it was a bit like a, a bit of a conspiracy theory thing. Well, sure, he didn't win. Ignatius did. Harper ended up being the prime minister. And then, of course, you know, international financial collapse occurred, just as Bob predicted. But he wasn't there. He wasn't there, but he, but people like you could live on saying that he said it first. He said it. Oh, it was the first, first I heard of it was on that flight. That's hilarious. And then, then, but just back to courage, like uh, you're standing in front of Mr. Bush, President Bush, and you talk to him about the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, Jean Poutine, which was just like, come on. That took some courage. That was, I remember I was, I was, I was freaking inside when that happened. I mean, there's been time, I, I get afraid. I get afraid a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is that enables me to do certain things. I guess it's like, you know, probably the thing I did and I manipulated the way people perceived me or the show was I would do things involving heights, for example. And heights is just something that never bothered me. Yeah. And there's lots of people that heights don't bother. I mean, anytime you see a roofer, look how comfortable yeah. they are. It just doesn't bother them. And I, I, I'm not now, but I was always one of those people. So I realized very quickly, because my brother is terrified of heights, uh, that he wouldn't bungee jump for a million bucks. He wouldn't jump out of a plane for a million bucks. He wouldn't go on the CN Tower. Like, he just wouldn't. So I knew that this was a thing. And anytime I did anything involving heights, people would be like, oh, my God, you're the bravest man in the world. And you did. They're like, no, you just have a phobia that I don't have. Yeah. Same with snakes, right? They'd wrap a snake around my neck. Some people would just, they'd have a nightmare for a week after watching that segment. You're so brave. No, just for some reason, snakes don't bother me. So a lot of it is a grand facade. I don't think I am. Uh, I'm particularly brave. I just figured that out. Uh, I think you're. I think it takes a real, like maybe I don't know what mustering courage up or whatever it is, but to put the mic in front of the president of the United States and say things like that takes that takes a that that's brave. That's brave. It's a, different, it's a different type, I guess. You know, it's like some. What you and I are doing now, just have sitting here having a free-flowing conversation that we know is being recorded, so we know is going to live somewhere forever. A lot of people would find that daunting. Yeah. You and I just don't. Yeah. And it's not bravery. It's just something that we've figured out how to do. Yeah. I guess it's why, you know, once upon a time, Dale Carnegie was such a huge, huge thing because so many people in the 50s and 60s thought I might have to stand up and give a small presentation in front of 12 colleagues and I can't do that. They would have to go and take all these courses and learn how to do it. Like that takes real bravery when That's you're true. starting from a point where 
the just the just the idea of it terrifies you. But I I never had that. I you know I ran for student council so I could get up and make a funny speech. But I'm sure there were a lot of kids in the room who just wouldn't be able to do that. Be able to do that? No, that's and they could be they could be a lot braver than me in just different areas. When you think about reinvention and back to the comment around Canada and, and America, and you think about our country, um, and I think this is it does it does for me it circles around reinvention has when you go back to where you were in 91 92 when or in the you know early 90s and onward when you were doing this hour and then on to rick mercer the country was a certain thing the country represented a certain thing the country our country you know stood for certain things do, do we need to reinvent ourselves do have we come far enough as a, as a country as a nation you know, Canada is a very complicated country, and it's always been such a, a, a federation, a confederation that's hanging by a thread in many ways. You know, we all remember watching the news that night when, you know, that needle just wasn't moving. Like how many people were voting for Quebec to yeah. leave yeah. Canada. And no matter what any of us thought uh, leading up to that moment, I mean, everyone's hearts were breaking across the country. We just couldn't believe it had come to that. And even though, uh, you know, Western alienation, you know, the feeling of alienation that's happening in Alberta hasn't culminated to, you know, us sitting there watching that needle, please God, it never will, uh, on that kind of referendum in Western Canada or anywhere else in Canada. It's all very, it's, uh, it's, it's, we're vulnerable. You know, we are, we are very vulnerable. I, I don't need to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to take care of one another. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, I mean, Canada, everywhere in Canada is so different as you travel around the country, but there are similarities. And Canadians, by and large, are incredibly generous. And I know that we are stronger together. I mean, I can't imagine what would happen if Canada became balkanized and just broke up into, you know, a bunch of different factions. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think about, but it's not, uh, it's not like it's something that can't happen. It could absolutely happen overnight. And there are always people who are willing to exploit it. You know, there's always people who are willing to like, like to exploit any kind of animosity between East and West and French and English and rural and urban. Like there's always people who are willing to get in there uh, and talk about how we're different and we can't get along versus looking for the bridges, right? And for bringing everyone together. But there are times when the country comes together and those are, those are spectacular. Yeah. I mean, populism is actually shifting so many things, as you said, towards, you know, towards the wrong, in my view, the wrong, the wrong things. But I, I do feel like we, can't we, there's an opportunity to reinvent ourselves in a, a very positive way, in a way that actually mm-hmm. makes this country come out stronger by, by having voices like yours and, and I hope mine to talk about how important it is for us to stay together. And when I think about, you know, I think about culture and I think about how important humor is um, to culture and to building kind of, and, and, and just the whole content establishment of a Canadian view to, to, to content development. I, I, 
feel like that needs to be preserved and it isn't being preserved enough. I, I listen all the time. I mean, I, I'll, I'll go there just for a minute, but all the time, you know, CBC should be shut down. CBC, bad, bad, bad. You know, I, my money being wasted. And all I can think about is, oh my goodness, like we need CBC because we need that Canadian culture. We need that thing that brings us together. Sure. I'm back to in early days listening to CBC radio and, you know, you know, you help me understand Canada, but honestly listening to a fisherman and, you know, whether it's off the coast of, you know, Prince George, BC, or, you know, whether it's in um, PEI or wherever it is, you know, these people were from places I'd never heard of, you know, cities and towns I'd never been to. Culture and and humor and content is so important. Do you think we should do better job? Of course. And, you know, the CBC should do a better job. But, you know, when you defend something like the CBC, you're not saying that, uh, oh, and they're perfect, by the way. No, no. You know, they're a crown corporation. They're far from perfect. I mean, show me one that is. Um, but yes, it is important. And I think one of the things that they do and did so well, you know, we have a, a program in Newfoundland called Land and Sea, which if you ever want to see. I've seen it. Yeah, Newfoundlanders march in the streets. It's when, you know, every 20 years, some executives in Toronto think maybe we'll get rid of that land and sea show. And then it hits the fan. Let me tell you, but you know, I would like to see that show aired on the network uh, occasionally. So people in Alberta can see it. And I would like to see an Alberta version of that. I would like to see, you know, segments uh, shot in Fort McMurray. And I would like to see uh, people meet the families that work in the oil sands and meet families that have worked in the oil sands for second two and three generations. And that doesn't mean that they can't have their opinion about the oil sands, but let's put a face on this. Let's get to know one another because it's not black and white. And same way with when we all get all up in arms about, oh my God, you hear what they're doing in Quebec? They're making, you know, they're saying, you know, you're not allowed to say hello, bonjour anymore. They've gone mad. Well, I would still like to spend some time getting to know why people feel in this day and age, their language is still under threat when to you and I, me, I don't even speak the language. And I think, well, that's patently absurd. That language is not under threat. Well, I'd like to see why people think it is. And I think that's something that only the public broadcaster could do because there's no money in it. Let's face yeah. it. There's no money. There's no money in that. That's not going to you know, bring in the giant eyeballs, but it will be there. And I would like to see, see more of that. Maybe also, that's the next say, also, let's say, you know, on the subject of CBC, one of the issues of the day, which is causing so much consternation, both on the east and in the right and on the left, is identity politics and uh, trans issues and people talking about their various pronouns and everyone is up in arms and it's all very, you know, it's very uh, conflicting and people are making, you know, drawing lines in the sand and a lot of hurt, a lot of things being said on all sides. In the midst of all this, the CBC has this show called Sort Of, which is on, which is on uh, CBC Gem. It's one of the better shows I've, I've seen in so long. We're in the golden age of television. Yeah. And if you, if you look at who is in the cast, you could, be, you could say, well, this is just like a woke checklist because it's about a trans female. Best friend is a lesbian. They're in a Pakistani family. You know, the, the mother is having to deal with this. And it, it just goes on and on and on. But never mind. Take all that apart. It's incredibly funny. It's incredibly heartfelt. Great and show. it brings a, opens a, a window into this world that so many people don't understand. And it will, 
It's all about winning the hearts and minds. And it's just really, really good. And I just can't see anyone else other than the public broadcaster doing that. So, like I said, I could talk about all the problems there, but I could certainly point at some very, very bright lights. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Like, not, nothing's ever perfect. And anybody who wants to hold somebody up to a standard needs to understand that it, it, the intention of what I believe is happening with the CBC still remains very true to itself, which is to try and bring those stories. Whether Remember Little Mosque on the Prairie was revolutionary when it came out, and it actually helped to create a, a whole new dialogue. But, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm just reckless and you are – you know, you've been a playwright, you've been a stand-up comic, you've been an honorary captain of an honorary captain. So you and me both. <laughs> I tell you, very strange. It's very strange. I, I'm, those uniforms are not comfortable. That's all I'm going to say. Like I have, like I don't know how they wear them. Um, an advocate for gay and lesbian youth in, in the bullying campaign, it gets better. You've been a TV producer. Um, sorry, you're an honorary colonel, not an honorary captain, right? I apologize. I've got the wrong. It's quite okay. Yeah, I may be, but I don't really understand the difference. It's not <laughs> like I'm the most wildly informed, and I'm no longer an honorary colonel. It was it was a short stint, but it was a, it was glorious. Well, I, I'm an honorary captain, and just you know, I can tell you this: that captains are actually above colonels, so they're not. Yeah. they're not there today. Um, but you know, you you've done you have reinvented every step of the way, and and this last you know reinvention in terms of kind of how you've taken this uh, maybe not a reinvention, but this last articulation of who you are by writing this book that you just wrote i mean you're you're beloved you're respected you you're held up as such a canadian icon and i know you must get i I know when people say that anything will even remotely like that i would never compare myself to you but i i do understand sometimes when people say oh you're you're this to you know everybody else i kind of go i don't i don't feel that i just feel like i want to be myself but uh, you know the I think, I think if you dwell on that kind of thing, I think it's a very bad road. It is. And it's, and it's uh, I think it would be a character flaw. Like, I think you're, you have been inspi- inspiring to, like, you know, generations of young women who want to be entrepreneurs or in business, all of those things. But if you start walking around going, well, hello, I'm an, I'm an inspiration to all young women everywhere, then you think, okay, Arlene's lost her mind and she's lost the plot. <laughs> Like, if you start going around thinking about that, you know, that's just, you got to do your work. That's yeah. the important thing. That's you true. just got to do your work. And what other people think doesn't really matter. And if they think nice things, uh, then that's great. Maybe just bring your book. I see it's sitting behind you there. Have you got it sitting? It just happens to be there. I, I just happens. I just happen to notice that on your show. Just, yeah. can, can you bring it out and we can show yes. the Yes, here it is. How lucky are we that you have it on your bookshelf? Look at that. Wow. My brother brother looked at that picture. He said, it looks like you're selling perfume. (laughs) You look hot. (laughs) Oh, you know, this was taken when I was 19 years old before my first one-person show. And one thing we all know when we reach a certain age is we don't realize how hot we were when we were 19. (laughs) We think we were awful. And then one day you look back and you go, I wasn't that bad, actually. So, so yeah, that was my, the smoldery me doing the. That's the angry young man me, and then that's, I'm back. That's the that's the gray me. 
Uh, you know what? I, I, I love both pictures and I love both. I love both versions. And if you're like me, you pull, I, I, the other day I pulled out a pair of jeans that were 10 years old and I thought I was fat 10 years ago. <laughs> I thought, how the hell did I fit into these? So it's kind yeah. of like, it's like your pictures, right? We don't, yeah. we don't respect ourselves for who we are when we are who we are. No. Um, no. But I, I do want to say I, I adore you um, as a human, um, you know, forget all the accolades and all the, the 23 Gemini, how many 23? I don't know. 24? Right. It's, it's been a long career. It's been a lot. You've a I've, lot worked with, I've worked with some very good people. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have led the way in terms of having people believe that they can do anything they set their mind to. If they And, and I, I don't, I hate the euphemism that says, you can be anything you want to be because I actually don't think you can be. I no, think you can't. Absolutely like, not. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I worry about a generation that is <laughs> erased with that notion. I know. I know. My parents never said that to me. No. You no. can do anything you want. <laughs> can I play professional basketball? <laughs> yes. Even always, though none of the men in our family are above five seven. You can play professional with your little bandy Irish legs. Just put your mind to it. Just work hard That's enough. Not, it'll come. It'll I always, come. I always say to people, first of all, I've got a shake in my right hand. I'll never be a surgeon. <laughs> right. Yes. No, you can. Uh, no. And I always say I'll never be a supermodel. The same thing. You know, like, I just am pretty damn sure I'm never yeah. going to be a supermodel. So, you know, like there are things that you can't do. And I, but I, what you can do is make, you find that courage to do the things that you're, you know, give you purpose. And I, I think your purpose, I don't know what you would say your purpose is. I'm actually curious. What's your why, Rick? What, what gets you out of bed every day? <laughs> what, what, what's your why? I don't yeah. know. I Come don't on. know. I, I What's was, your ex then? Do you have to why? What was my old why? <laughs> I I was just, you know, I was saved by creative endeavors. It was the only thing that interested me. I was such a poor student, but then when I got the stupid idea to start a magazine, boy, I worked hard. And I didn't know anything about starting a magazine or anything. We only did one issue, but boy, we worked hard on it. Um, but those things gave me great pleasure. And I'm just glad that I've always been able to do that. But it's changing. My why has changed a lot now. I, you know, for 15 years, I was so happy to travel the country and do the Mercer Report. I don't want to do that anymore. I love the people I work with. I love the travel. But I don't want to be on a treadmill pumping out 26 episodes of a TV show in a row. And it's a great feeling when it's happening. I just don't want to do that anymore. And uh, maybe I will again. I don't know. But uh, I just want to be able to continue doing creative endeavors. And that's, uh, that's a big gift to be able to do that. Yeah, it is. And, and I sure hope you continue doing that too, because I, uh, I look forward to everything you do. And I'm, I, I know I started off saying I, I'm partway through the book. I'm going I'm to go to the bookstore here in Calgary because I did forget to bring it with me on my trip and I'm going to go buy it so I can finish it. How, what kind of an interview you, is this where I don't even haven't even read the book? Like I that's sh- quite all right. That's quite all right. And you know what you do when you're there? If the books are on the shelf like this, you take them out and put them like that. I will do that for you. Just I, do I that for this. me. I know this. Don't, don't, tell, don't tell Heather Reisman that you're doing it, but just do it. I will. Just and a actually, I'll little, bit of, little bit of rearranging. You can sign me. That's right. You can do <laughs> that's, that. 
I'll sign up for you. Rick, any last thoughts to anybody about who's considering reinventing themselves or any thoughts that's about your book that you want to share? Uh, I think reinvention is fantastic. I think it's, uh, it's what keeps us going. My father retired, went back to university and got a degree at 65. Uh, he didn't do that because it was going to help his professional career because he was done with that. And after he retired, he acted in a movie. He wrote a children's book. Wow. He's 89 years old and he just built a boat. What? He, he's, not, he's not a boat builder, by the way, <laughs> but he built a boat. Wow. Yeah, we're going to launch it in, in a week, I think. So I, I saw, by example, reinvention up close. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's what keeps him going. And I think it's what will keep me going, hopefully. I want to have your dad on the show. I'd love to hear his story. That's like. Oh, he would never. He would never. Never? He would never. No, my goodness. Although he would be great, but he would never. I'm just looking for my phone to show you a picture of the boat. It's beautiful. Because I tell you, growing up, all growing up, there was this, there was uh, in my house, there were all these, there was all these, these plans around, big plans. And dad ordered them for like $1.25 from Popular Mechanics Magazine, like in 1952 or something. It was like, build your own boat. And dad, we'd take it out when we were kids. He'd say, oh, that's a boat. I'm going to build that someday. And then uh, my buddy, a friend of mine, who hangs out with my father a lot now, he's basically the son my father should have had. And, uh, no, no, he's, he's great. Um, and he knows about boats. He's a bit of a pirate. And he was down talking to my father one day and saw the plans. And he said, what are they, Ken? And he said, oh, that's uh, the boat plans. They're going to build a boat someday. And uh, my buddy Randy said, I'll build it with you. And they started building this boat. And uh, yeah, 89 years of age. And, oh, I can't uh, wait to see it now. I know. I'm going to find. I'm very close. I'm very close. I'm very close. I know this is, a, we can edit this part yeah, out. Yeah, we'll edit this out. Oh my gosh. That's isn't, like, that, isn't that stunning? That's amazing. He's 89? Isn't that, isn't that something? Look at that. That's crazy. I know. Yeah. So talk about reinvention. And he would never wow. call himself a boat builder, but he built a boat. If I built a boat, like, you wouldn't hear the end of this. If you built a boat, I wouldn't get in it. Let's do it that way. <laughs> and plus, after this, Ayers, if he's going to call me up sometimes and say, what are you doing telling people I built a boat? <laughs> Look at that out. I want to meet your dad. That's, he sounds like yeah. an amazing yeah. human. Well, you know what? He raised a, an amazing human. So, listen, I thanks so much. Say hi to Gerald for me. And, uh, I will. I, a huge, uh, personally, I think the world of you and I, um, I, I always will. So thank you for taking. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully our paths will cross soon now that the, the world seems to be opening up again. I hope that is the trend. The more you know, the harder it is. As Rick mentions, there is power in going after something which you may not be formally educated or trained in. Talent and passion have a way of shining through for those who may not possess the experience needed for a certain role or opportunity. When presented with the chance to do a one-man show for the National Arts Centre, Rick knew there was no time to prepare, but he didn't let it face him. He took a leap and that chance changed his life forever. Some may say it's foolish to jump into something which you have no experience in, but those who have a firm understanding of their core purpose will let that passion guide them. 
Will you stumble along the way and need to recalibrate? Likely. But every bump along the way is a lesson learned and the chance to get one step further in your success story. Stay safe and stay human. Thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast is made possible by the great folks at Venture Communications. Thanks to our engineers, writers, producers, and all the folks who work really hard to bring you these great stories of reinventions each and every week. 